0: Morning. Back to Philippians chapter 2. Back to verses 1 through 4, page 981 in the Pew Bible. Last week we began looking at this passage, focusing primarily on verse 1, the beginning of verse 2. Today we'll look at the rest of 2 and verses 3 and 4. Last week was the gospel and joy. This week is unity and humility, and all of it is connected. Before we get to the long and wonderfully detailed description of Christ in the gospel in verses 5 through 11, Paul first has given us a short taste and description of the wonderful benefits that are ours in Christ in verse 1. Remember that verse 1 is one big if-then statement. If there is any encouragement in Christ, and we saw that there is infinite encouragement in Christ As well as love from the Father, participation in the Spirit. If there is any Trinitarian affection and sympathy, Father, Son, Spirit united together to seek and save the lost. If all that's true, Paul says, then complete my joy. That's the main verb, that's the main command of the passage. We've already seen Paul's desire for their joy. In chapter 1, verse 25, now he desires that they would complete his joy. Is that selfish? No, because he finds his joy in them finding their joy in Jesus. Paul finds his joy in them finding the thing that will bring them the most joy, Jesus Christ. You want joy? Great. Paul wants that for you too. God wants that for you too. The problem is that your definition of joy may be different than God's definition of joy. The problem is that the place you think your joy will be found may be different than the place God knows your joy will be found. Maybe you've been looking for joy in all the wrong places. Well, Paul is here to help us. Remember, this whole book, this whole series is a study of gospel-generated joy as Paul makes his case that joy is found only in Jesus. Paul knows that. He's found that himself. And now he wants that for the Philippians. And he wants it. Uh, he wants others to know and find their joy in Jesus. And only then will Paul's joy be complete. But how will that happen? What will that look like? What will be the results of a church? This letter is written to a church in modern day Greece, a Philippi in modern day Greece. Well, what will it look like for a gathering of believers to find their joy in Jesus? And Paul says that one of the main things it will look like is unity in Jesus. So we first need to sort out what unity is and why it's so important. But again, don't miss the fact that Paul is writing this to a church. He's telling them that they need to be unified, which means that it is possible for a church not to be unified. Unity is a struggle. Unity doesn't come automatically. So how does it come? We know it's only the gospel. That was last week. And that will be again next week. But practically, how does it come? What is our part in pursuing and fostering, developing unity? What steps can we take to pursue unity? And Paul tells us in verses 3 and 4. It's humility. So here's the sermon. Pretty simple. The unity of the people of God comes through the humility of the people of God. It's unity through humility. No fancy outline. The text gives it straight to us. We're going to look first at the unity of the people. Then we're going to look at the humility of the people. If all the wonderful things of verse one are true for you, then are you living accordingly? Are you living a manner of life worthy of the gospel, which is a life of unity With the people of God, in humility, loving and serving the people of God. Is your life generally more characterized by unity and humility or by division and pride? Honestly, I want you to all honestly stop, and I want you to consider that question. Don't breeze by this. I'm asking you individually, as we work through this sermon, consider this question. Are you more characterized by unity and humility or division and pride? Answer that question honestly for yourself. If I polled your friends and family, what would they say? How would they answer the question? If I examined your Facebook account, how would I answer that question? There is a way of life, both demanded by and produced by the gospel. And it is a life of unity and humility. Is that our life, your life? Because it's increasingly rare these days. Division is common, unity is uncommon. Are we united? Are you united with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Pride is common, humility is uncommon. Are you humble? Are you counting others more significant than yourself and looking to their own interests and not only your own? That's the Christian life. That's a manner of life worthy of the gospel. Unity through humility. Let's jump in and read it first. I'll read for you Philippians chapter 2, short passage, just verses 1 through 4. You can follow along in your copy of the scripture. This is the word of God for the people of God. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Bow with me and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we know and believe that it is living and active. Father, we know that it does not return void. So we ask now that you would do your work through your word. Accomplish in us, accomplish through me. What I am insufficient and incapable to accomplish. Father, use your spirit to apply your word to our hearts. Father, we want to honor you and represent you well through the unity of this church as we love and serve one another in humility. Father, we know that only comes by a work of grace in our hearts. Father, begin that work through your word in every single one of us now in this time. Help us to focus, help us to see, help us to delight. Jesus Christ. We ask and we pray this in his name. Amen. Alright, so we're first talking about unity. Paul, in light of the wonderful truths of verse 1, calls he commands the Philippians to complete his joy, verse 2, by being united. So let's define that. What is unity? Well, he tells us what it is in verse 2. Look at the fourfold description he gives for us there in verse 2. This is what. Unity is. It's interesting that there are four statements of the benefits that we have in the gospel in verse 1. If these things are true, then there are four descriptions of the unity that should reflect those benefits. It's four and four. Remember, Paul masterfully constructs this passage. So the first one is, in light of the gospel, be this. Be of the same mind. And that's going to be an important word for us in this passage And in this whole book, Paul uses the word mind more in Philippians than he does anywhere else. But this use in the Greek is not a noun, but a verb. The being that you see there in verse 2 is added to help clarify. Literally, it says, complete my joy by thinking the same. So check this out. This is pretty neat, what Paul does here. He's trying to emphasize in this verse how comprehensive This unity is. It's not, ah, we get together for an hour a week and sing the same song, so unified. No. Look at this unity. Look at the end of the verse now. You'll see, of one, mind, again. It's the same word. So we start with mind, and we end with mind. Again, mind is going to be very important today. Keep that in mind, and we'll come back to it later. I'll remind you in a minute. But notice what's in between the two words of the two uses of mind. I think the ESV's construction is a little confusing. There are four separate phrases here. So there should be a comma. You can add it if you want. It's not not blasphemy. There should be a comma after being in full accord to make it clear that it's separated from the one mind. We've got a mind sandwich. Mind on the outside. Look at the inside. First one. Having the same love. That's the somewhat infamous word agape. Agape. Listen, agape just means love. Agape is not some super special distinct love from all the other loves. The Bible has a couple different words for love, and it uses all of them interchangeably in different spots. Sometimes Jesus will say agape, phileo, agape. It just mixes them all together. If someone tells you that agape is different, they're wrong. The Bible doesn't do that. But the point is that they need to be united not only in their thinking, but also in their Love it. And these two are intimately connected, and even more so than we think. Remember, we don't think up here with this and feel down here with this. No, both of these things, thinking and feeling, are faculties of our, our mind or of our heart or soul or spirit, whatever you want to call it. We are physical, we have bodies, and then we are spiritual. We have minds. And those minds think and they feel, and they will. All of it is a property of the one thing, the mind. So he says, be united in your thinking and your loving. And then look at the third one, being in full accord. Again, not the best translation. The the New American Standard gets it the closest. It says being united in spirit. This is a neat compound word in the Greek. Paul takes the prefix for with, And he takes the word for soul and he shoves them together. Literally, it means be with soul. It would be kind of like our word soulmates, indicating such an intimacy and unity that two now are almost one. Think of it like marriage and the two will become one flesh. Marriage is such an intimate uniting together of two persons that they become, in a sense, one in Everything, not just physically. Everything. Don't have separate bank accounts. That's unbiblical. One flesh. Everything is united. That's a side note. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> uh, but it's it's united. Right? We're united in everything. So that's what Paul wants for the church. That the, that's the intimacy, the, the, the depth of it that Paul wants for the church. So he mentions their mind. He talks about their love, which we always associate with the heart. And then he talks about their soul, and he finishes up with mind again. It makes me think of Jesus' great commandment. Here's the law. Here's the most important thing. You have a tendency to think that you are a pretty good person because you do a pretty good job of keeping part of the law. You don't murder people, uh, you don't commit adultery, and you don't steal. Congratulations. You're a regular, decent person. Citizen, But here's the main one. How are you doing with this law? Matthew 22, 37, You shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Man, are you doing that? Do you truly love God? I'm not asking you if you believe that God exists. I'm not asking you if you believe in a historical figure of Jesus Christ. I'm asking, can you honestly say that you love God? That's salvation. Biblically, faith, knowing God, is loving God. If you have knowledge without love, you don't really have true biblical knowledge. Do you love the Lord? And notice how the command is to love God, not just with our hearts, but we love him with our heart. Soul, mind. Not three separate distinct things, but three overlapping and somewhat synonymous terms that Jesus just piles up for the purpose of emphasis. He's saying, heart, soul, mind, everything. Love God with everything you have and with everything that you are. That's the main commandment. And so throwing all of these terms together in a row highlights the intensity and the depth of the love with which we are to love God in response to his perfect love for us. Well, Paul's doing the same thing in Philippians 2, too. He's piling up these overlapping and somewhat synonymous terms, mind, love, soul, mind, to emphasize the intensity and the depth of the unity that he is calling us to. This is no surface level unity. We are to be same minded, same loved, one soul. This is spiritual oneness. If marriage is the one flesh union of a man and a woman united together in marriage, the church is to be a one spirit union of men and women united together in Christ. That's unity. It is a single minded togetherness that binds us to one another, and then glorifies God. And Paul is emphatic about this. This is what will complete his joy. Why? Why is unity so important to Paul? Well, remember, the most important thing to Paul is the gospel. We saw a few weeks ago that he uses the word gospel five times in the first chapter. The gospel is the reason for Paul's existence, for him to live as Christ. Well, Christ is the gospel. So as long as Christ is glorified and as long as the gospel of Christ advances, then Paul will rejoice no matter what happens to Paul. Paul is entirely other focused. And that's where we're going. That's the next point. But this gospel that Paul is obsessed with, that which is of first importance to him, is the good news about what God has done in Christ to save sinners. And not just save sinners in some general, undefined, abstract way. But he has specifically saved us from his justice and from his wrath. The gospel is that we are saved from God, by God, for God. It is the message that we're not just forgiven from sin and saved from condemnation, but that we are restored and we are reconciled to God. We were his enemies, but in Christ, we are now at peace with God. And not only are we just at peace with him, but as we've been seeing, as Jeff preached for us a couple of weeks ago, as Paul delights to remind us, we are literally in Christ. We have union. With Christ. We are His and He is ours. We are in Him. So, union with Christ is about the unity we now have in Him and with Him. That's, that's the good news. The good news that we are charged with advancing by proclaiming. But, how could we ever expect non Christians to be convinced that Christ reconciles us to God? if we can't even be reconciled to one another. How can we expect the world to hear our message of forgiveness when we cannot even forgive one another? How can we expect them to believe that we have great unity with God himself when we cannot even have moderate unity with one another? Unity is critical to our gospel witness. Disunity is fundamentally at odds... With the gospel, Uh, a Christian who cannot forgive and reconcile and unite with another Christian is a cause for great concern. If the gospel is a message of love and forgiveness and unity and peace, and if we are to live a manner of life worthy of the gospel, our lives must then be marked by love and forgiveness and unity and peace. The very things that we were so graced with in that gospel. And if our lives are not marked by that, it's, just a, it's, a, it's a red light. We've got a serious problem. We are here on this earth, in this city, in this neighborhood, on this street corner to reflect and to represent God to the watching world. The world cannot see God, but it can see us. What are we showing the world? What are we revealing about our God? And unity is also so important, not just because it witnesses to the truth of the gospel, but because it honors and glorifies God. He is a God of peace and unity. We have been made in His image. We have been redeemed and remade in the image of Christ. We do that and him great dishonor, when we cannot even unite with one another, when He has reunited us with him in spite of our sin. So Woodside, are we united? And I can absolutely say that we are not divided, and, and praise God for that. But by the grace of God, I think last Sunday was our sixth anniversary. It was either last Sunday or the Sunday before VJ would know. Um, but, but by the grace of God, over the course of those six years, there just hasn't been any real true discord, disharmony, and division. That's pretty amazing. That, that, that doesn't happen. That's That's all God and his goodness and grace. We should be thankful for the relative peace that he has blessed us with here. So we are not divided. But in the sense that Paul writes here in verse 2, are we truly united? Are we characterized by this same-mindedness, same love, one-soulness? Are we all on the same page that the one reason we exist is to glorify God? And we do that by preaching Christ crucified, by loving one another, and by evangelizing the lost. That's what Paul wants for us. And that's what I want for us. Togetherness, united around the gospel of Jesus Christ with one mind, with one purpose, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. My prayer for us is Jesus' prayer in John 17, 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one. Catch this part. That they may be one, even as we are one. Hey, we definitely fall short of that. But that's what Jesus wants and prays for us. The very unity that he has with the Father. Perfect unity. True, same-mindedness. And one, soulness. That's what we want to characterize us. The very mind, heart, soul, and mission God. Unity completes Paul's joy and brings God great glory. And so the next question then is, how does this happen? How do we get this unity? Now, first, we've got to be clear. We know that we only get it through the gospel, but we know that it only comes first by the grace of God given to us in Christ. We don't create this unity. We, we cannot do that. We don't need to do that. God has already objectively created that uh, for us in Christ. If you are in him, you have union with Christ, and thus you have communion with the people of Christ. God makes that a reality, but subjectively now, how do we foster that, how do we develop that, and how do we live that out? Point number two. It's the humility of the people of God. And Paul's argument is very simple here. Unity comes through humility humility. Look at verse 3. Do nothing. There's no do there. He says nothing. Nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Stop there. Let's Focus first on that word humility. It's a pretty neat word. Paul tells us to do something, and he tells us to do it in humility. So, so what is that? With well, a Greek word translated here in humility in verse 3 is again another compound word. The first word means low, and the second word means mind. Which, of course, the same word, it's the same root word for mind that Paul has used again in verse 2. The mind is the key. Humility is then low-mindedness. Humility is to think of or to judge ourselves with lowliness. Why? lowliness well, it's because of who we are in comparison to who God is calvin writes this at the beginning of the institutes he writes it is evident that no it is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of god and then come down after such contemplation to look into himself that's humility it's right thinking it is a right Low view of oneself, it is the proper perspective of the creature in comparison to the Creator. And so humility is dependent upon reality. It is looking at our pervasive sinfulness in light of God's perfect holiness. And if you do that, that will humble. You. That will give you a right and proper view of yourself, which will then lead to a right and proper view of God, which will then lead to a right and proper view of others. This is really important to grasp, because humility is absolutely central to the Christian life. It doesn't seem that strange to us. We've all of us grown up in a society that has been built upon, at least to some degree, basic Christian principles and Christian foundations. But at the time of the writing of this letter, almost 2,000 years ago, in Greek culture, humility was an utterly foreign concept to them. It was an abhorrent concept to the Greeks. At this time, the Greeks didn't even have a word for humility. It was something they so detested. The word was coined somewhat right around the beginning of the church. In fact, some scholars will even argue that Paul himself coins the Greek word for humility right here in this verse when he creates it and takes low-mindedness and makes this word a new word. We don't know if that's true or not, but it's it's possible. But we still need to be careful and clear because when I say low-mindedness, You may be tempted, with all the cultural influence and input you've got, you may be tempted to hear me saying, low self-esteem. That's not what we're talking about. Our culture is obsessed with self-esteem, which is no surprise because our culture is obsessed with self, right? But humility, low-mindedness, is not low self-esteem. And thus the answer is not that you just need more self-esteem. Right, The the world's answer to low self-esteem is to, yeah, you just got to think better about yourself and think higher and think more about yourself and just believe in yourself. You can do anything that you set your heart to. No, you can't. That's dumb. But that's the exact opposite uh, of the biblical prescription. Because as C.S. Lewis famously points out in his chapter on pride in mere Christianity, and by the way, if I loaned that out to you and I forgot about it, bring it back Uh, because I went to grab my copy of Mere Christianity off the shelf, and it wasn't there. Uh, I loan books, and sometimes I forget. So if you have it, I want that back. Anyways, at the end of Lewis's chapter on pride, he writes that were you to come back um, from meeting a humble person, you would never come back thinking that they were a humble person. Humble people don't mope around telling everybody, oh, you know, they're they're a nobody. They're not like an Eeyore kind of thing, because that's actually just a different form of self-obsession. Right? Instead, he says you would come away from meeting a humble person thinking about how much they seem to be totally focused on, interested in you. Because that's the essence of humility, as Lewis puts it famously. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And that's exactly what Paul says again in verse 3. Look at verse 3. What are you to do in this low-mindedness? He says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Listen to how the King James translates it. This is helpful, especially in our self-esteem-obsessed culture. The King James says this. It says, but in lowliness of mind, that's very literally the word, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. You see that? Humility is about esteem, but it's not about self-esteem. Not the thing that the world is telling you that you need. Self-love, high opinion of yourself. Uh, we have no problem with self-esteem. What we need is Christ's esteem. Or better yet, what we need is Christ's esteem. That's the solution to your problems. We, we read last week the amazing words from Jesus in John 15, 11, where he says, I have spoken these words to you that my joy, Jesus' joy, may be in you. And so we can have the very joy of Jesus himself. And that's, that's unbelievable. But we didn't even have time to consider the equally amazing word in verse 9, where he says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. That's what you need. Christ's esteem. That verse is unbelievable. Christ says in the same way that God the Father perfectly loves God the Son, the Son with whom he is well-pleased, Jesus says he loves us with that same love. In Christ, you have the perfect love of the perfect Father for his perfect Son given to you, the very imperfect inheritor of these wonderful things. And so this is how this all works. In the gospel, we are graced We are gifted with the very esteem of Christ himself. God the Father's perfect esteem for his son. his perfect regard or consideration or love for his son. That's given to us while we were yet sinners. When we did not seek it or earn it or choose it, God graciously gives it to us in Christ. And when we experience that amazing esteem of God, we are born again. We are made new. And because of his great esteem for us, we cannot then help but to esteem him in return. We love him because he first loved us. We esteem him because he first esteemed us. And it is this thankful vertical esteem of God for his esteem for us, which then turns itself outward and horizontally into our esteem for others. Now, because of the amazing grace that we have been given in Christ, because of the amazing counting of us as significant by God, what is man that you are mindful of me? Because he has counted us significant, we then desire and delight to count others more significant than ourselves. As God has done to and for us, We cannot help but then do to and for others. And it all starts with this mindset, humility, low-mindedness of understanding who we are in our sin and what we deserved for our sin, understanding the holiness and the justice of our perfect God, and then understanding the amazing grace that has saved such a wretch like me. Today we think that verse says, amazing grace that saved such a winner like me. We think, yeah, it's grace, it's good, I'm glad he saved us, but we feel pretty good about ourselves. And so the grace makes sense. No, it's wretch, saved a wretch like me. That's how, and that's the only way, I can count others more significant than myself in light of the gospel. That's why humility is the very heart and core of the gospel. Matthew 18, verses three and four, Jesus says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I think we often misunderstand what Jesus is saying there. The humility of a child is not that they are innocent. Have you had children? They're not innocent. The humility of a child is not that they lack pride. My daughter beat me in Mario Kart the other day, and she was not lacking in pride. Uh, Steph Curry plays tonight, so I had to talk to her about pride. Children, just like adults, are naturally prideful and naturally selfish. How then is a child humble? My child is humble because a child is helpless, a child cannot take care of itself. A child cannot provide for its own needs, and so a child must have an adult to meet all his needs for him. That's what humility is. It is the right recognition that we are helpless and that we cannot take care of, we cannot take care of ourselves, and so we must have God meet all of our needs for us. That's humility. I remember a while back I recommended a little book with the very... Um, bold title of The Secret of Spiritual Joy. It's quite the claim. It's a promise, big promise. Well, what's the secret according to the book? Well, it's pretty simple. It's gratitude. Uh, One scholar in the book uh, has done an extensive study and claims that Paul writes more on gratitude than any other ancient writer, pagan or Christian. Paul writes the most on gratitude because Paul understands how important it is. Gratitude produces joy because gratitude recognizes that everything that we have is grace. Everything is a gift from a good God. And so, as a thankful person increasingly recognizes that, they increasingly turn from self and the demands of pride and personal fulfillment to focus on God, the God of all grace and as the only one in whom we can actually find personal fulfillment. And so gratitude directs us to him and is thus the secret of spiritual joy. But then there's another little book, a little booklet. It's not even a book. This is by Tim Keller a while back. And the subtitle of his booklet is The Path to True Christian Joy. Well, man, again, that sounds pretty great. That sounds pretty promising and important. What is it? The title of the book tells us the title of the book is The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Keller lays out and says that the path is humility. Because, as we will see next week, that's the path that Jesus walked before us. So humility counts others more significant than self. In the first part of verse 3, look there, tells us what it doesn't do. Says nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Probably too much Greek this week, but do you know what the Greek word translated nothing in Greek means? Nothing. It's a joke. It just means nothing. We are to do nothing in this attitude. The very opposite of humility is selfish ambition. Uh, the word means a divisive spirit that produces. Strife. It is the idea of acting for one's own gain or pleasure, regardless of the conflict that it may cause. It's the idea of self-seeking and self-promoting an attitude that that creates and then often even seeks and enjoys the division that follows. And listen, this is just what social media is. It's all about self-promotion. It's all about self-expression with zero regard for other people. It is the epitome of how the King James translates these words. I love this. These are, do nothing from strife and vain glory. I love that, vain glory. That's what the word conceit means. It means empty and glory. Again, Paul shoves the words together. Empty, cheap, valueless, glory. And it is that which almost exclusively characterizes our culture. And sadly, even much of our Christian culture, especially these days online. There's an old great commentator, Albert Barnes, and he puts it like this. He says, if all could be taken out of human conduct, which is performed merely from strife or vainglory, how small a portion would be left. Which is what makes Paul's command here so radical and amazing.
1: He's saying, you know that thing
0: that is basically everything in the world? He says, do nothing in and from that spirit. No selfish ambition, No empty pride or glory. There is no room for any of that in the Christian life. And it's because of what's coming in verses 5 through 11. It's because Christ emptied himself. Same word at the beginning of vain glory. He humbled himself by taking the form of a slave, meaning by becoming one of us, by becoming a man, and he died on a cross so that you could live. That's the one whom we claim to follow. That's the one whom we are supposedly becoming more like. And that's why this unity is so unbecoming of the gospel. That's why there should be nothing done from selfish ambition and empty. Glory. And so check yourself. Ask yourself, again, from the beginning, do your words and your interactions with people tend to produce conflict and division or comfort and unity? If it's the former, then you may be doing things from selfish ambition and conceit. Such an attitude never promotes unity. It never builds up the body. It never edifies the church. It always separates and divides. Or ask yourself this, is there someone in the church that you just don't like, and you just seem to be completely unable to get along with? Guys, that's, that's a gospel problem. Last week we looked briefly at the wonderful encouragement that we can find in the doctrine of election. Well, consider the doctrine of election in light of that person that you cannot stand. That person that you would have never chosen uh, to be your friend. God specifically chose that person. He chose to love and to save that person. And he sovereignly chose to bring that person into your life. Maybe you should stop looking at all the things that annoy you about that person and start looking at God's election of that person. Maybe instead of focusing on how much you don't like them, focus on how much the God of the universe loves them. Chose them and sent his very son to die for them. I said, How could we dare dislike that which God has so loved? If that's you, you are wrong and you are sinning and you need to repent. The true obstacle to unity, it's not different views, it's not different opinions, it's not different backgrounds or upbringings or cultures or economic standing. We can have different views and opinions. Unity is not uniformity. The problem is not the differences. The problem is the pride and the self-centeredness. These things creep into the church. And as we'll see, as it appears that it was, into the Philippian church— it destroys unity. Because again, everyone is now turned in on themselves, seeking their own way, seeking their own glory. And the more that happens, the more there is anger, and there is conflict and there is division. Guys, what a tragedy that this can happen among Christians. The great Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs recommended one of his books two weeks ago. He writes this, just, man, stuck with me, I wrote it down. He says, "Oh, we can write Puritans can write with O's." He says, "Oh, it is infinitely unbecoming a Christian to have an unloving disposition, a hateful disposition, to be hating one another, and have a spirit of opposition, contradiction and conflict one against another. Nothing is more unbecoming of the gospel of Jesus Christ than this." Hey, you hear that? Nothing is more unbecoming the gospel than an angry, divisive, biting, cutting Christian. It is contrary to the very heart of the gospel. There is zero excuse for such a disposition in a believer. It is a sin that must be repented of. It is an attitude that must be rejected because again, it is an attitude contrary to the Christ that we follow. Don't forget, fellow proud people like me, I'm the chief of sinners when I come to this. I struggle with pride. I struggle with vainglory. I think I'm better than you because you are blind to the glories of Carolina basketball, right? How stupid is that? Uh, But let's not forget James 4 6. This should just lay us low. That God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you are proud, according to Scripture, God is against you. If you are humble, according to Scripture, God gives grace. One more quote. John Stott, this time, writes, At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility the greatest friend. And I'm focusing on this a little bit because I think pride has become one of those acceptable sins in the church. You know, it's not murder, so it's not that bad, so we're not going to worry about it. I want you to hear and then believe that pride is your greatest enemy because it sets you in opposition to God and that humility is your greatest friend because then it opens you up to the grace of God. And that humility looks like laying down your own pride, your own self-interest and counting, esteeming, considering others as more significant than yourself, which will result in verse four. Real quick, look at verse four. I, you're welcome. I spared you from a third sermon on this text. Uh, so let me run quickly through verse four as we close. Humility we've seen is first and foremost a mindset, but it is a mindset that then works itself out in a life set. I'm doing, making a word, I'm pulling a pole, it's not a thing. But it works itself out in action. Look at verse four. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's humility in action. First Corinthians ten twenty four. Paul writes, "Let no one seek his own good, but the good of the neighbor." And that's, that's what humility does. I've had a number of people. There's been a slew, a bunch of you for some reason, timing. I've had a number of you ask me about the sign gifts lately. just kind of people individually all coming to me. Hey, what do you think about does God still give the gifts of healing and prophecy and tongues? No, I don't think that he does. That's why they're called the sign gifts. Right? They're given in the time of the apostles to testify and to confirm their authority as the ones through whom God would give his word. Right? So once we get the word, there's no more need for the signs that testify to the ones from whom we would get the word. No more sign gifts. Tongues is the nail in the coffin. What people call tongues today is not what tongues were in the Bible. In the Bible, tongues was the miraculous ability to speak a known language without ever having learned that language for the purpose of communicating the gospel to others. God no longer gives that gift. If he does, Jesse Rose has right to be greatly upset as they really struggle to learn the difficult language of Japanese. Now, today, tongues has become nonsensical, silly babbling. It's become what people call a private prayer language. No, biblically, that's, that's not a thing. Why not? 1 Corinthians 12, 7, Because to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Paul says the specific purpose for spiritual gifts is for the common good. They're always given for the purpose of being used to serve and to bless others. Whatever it is that people call tongues today does not do that. Gifts are not private. God, God gives the spiritual gifts only for the good of others. And it's in the midst of that conversation of spiritual gifts that Paul goes on and says, and I will still show you a more excellent which is love, because this is what love is. It's seeking the good of the other. He explains in the famous 1 Corinthians 13, which is not a wedding passage, by the way, but he says that one of the qualities of love is that love does not insist on its own way. It can't, because by definition, uh, this biblical love is other-centered. It's focused on the way of the other, and that's what the spiritual gifts are are for. That's what the roles and the offices of the church are for. It's for seeking the good of the other. It's not about positions. It's not about power. It's about service. It's about seeking the good of others. That's how humility works itself out in love. It puts others first in thought then in deed. It counts others more significant than self, and then it acts. It It goes out of its way to put others first and to seek and serve their good. Can you imagine if everyone was doing that? What an amazingly loving and united place churches would be. It's business meeting today. Um, So I read this every business meeting. I'll read it again in 45 minutes. Um, So members, make sure and stay. But I love the book of Titus, I love Titus 2 and 3. Uh, Christian, here is how you are commanded to think and deal with others. In Titus chapter 3, verse 2. Paul says there, speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. And that, that verse has just been ripped out, I think, today. From the church, in light of our current government situation, in light of how cool people think it is to be cutting and biting and arrogant and loud, no, Paul specifically in Scripture commands gentleness. Everyone. Perfect courtesy toward everyone. Is that how we treat one another? Is that how we engage with one another or engage with the world or engage with others on Facebook? Gentleness and perfect courtesy. Why? Why is that how we should act? He tells us, next verse, verse 3, 4. Here's why. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's who we were. Verse 4. But, but God. But when the goodness and loving and kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. But God. It's wonderful. Listen. We Calvinists, I'm comfortable saying we now. Six years. I'm done. If you like and agree with most of my preaching, bad news. You're a Calvinist. Uh, we Calvinists should be the humblest and kindest people that anyone has ever met. Because we understand total depravity. And we understand it not as just something out there, not as just something wrong with all those people, but something first and foremost in here. Total depravity is something wrong with us. It is something wrong with our hearts. For we ourselves were once this, but God. The gospel of grace changes everything. The cross changes everything. The cross is the most humbling thing in the world. It tells you that there was nothing you could do to save yourself. The only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin that required it. Spurgeon's famous quote, if you add one stitch to the garment of your salvation, you spoil the whole thing. The cross tells you that you were so bad that only God himself coming in the flesh to die in your place could rescue you. Remember, the severity of the cure uh, reveals the severity of the disease. Minor headache, pop an aspirin. Small cure, small disease. Major heart attack, heart transplant, chest cracked open, heart cut out, new heart put in, huge cure for huge disease. Your disease demanded the death of the Son of God. Infinitely huge disease. And look at the cross and be humbled. Are you arrogant? How do you really understand the cross? Are you obnoxious to others? How do you really understand the cross? Can you not forgive someone? How? Do you really understand the cross? Can you not get along with brothers and sisters in Christ? How do you understand this cross? We don't, we so frequently don't because the cross destroys arrogance, it destroys obnoxiousness, it destroys unforgiveness and conflict and pride and a a true understanding of the cross and the one who is up on that cross for us will humble you in a way that you may not have yet experienced. Only the gospel can do that. And Christians are humble because Christians have experienced this grace of God and grace and gladness always go together. And the gladness or the joy in terms of Philippians that is produced by grace always produces humility which always leads to unity. Gospel is what creates this in us, which then causes us to seek this unity among us. I've got to stop. The Christian life is a corporate life of unity with the people of Christ, loving one another in the humility that only comes from the gospel of Christ. Unity is based on humility, and humility is based on the gospel. That's the only place where we will find joy. Bow with me and let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. Father, we need you. Humble us. You have humbled me. Forgive us for our great pride and our great arrogance. Uh, Forgive us for how we so frequently act in a way that claims credit for what we have and for who we are. Father, drive us to Christ, drive us to the cross. Show us and demonstrate uh, to us the great humility that comes from the experience of your grace. Lord, we want Woodside to be a church that reflects Paul's words here in Philippians chapter two. Father, we wanna be united because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to love one another and seek the good of one another in humility because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we all so frequently uh, fall short of your glory and of your goodness and of your holiness. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy and your patience. Father, work now in our hearts uh, through your word in a way that only you can do. Father, we ask that you would show us Christ.